Our scripture reading this evening comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good evening, Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Welcome, and thanks so much for being here. And if you're visiting with us, I want to extend a special welcome to you. And and again, thanks so much for coming out uh, on such a gorgeous evening. um, It's so good to see your faces. It's so good to be with you, and it's good to be back um, together again. My name is Jonathan Mosier. Uh, It's my privilege and my honor to open up the Word of God with you and for you this evening. And so if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark 
chapter 5. Last week, we began the first in what ultimately became a two-part sermon uh, on the passage that Susan just read. As you, if you were paying attention, it's a rather lengthy um, portion of Scripture. And what we find in that text is really two stories wrapped into one. You have the story of Jairus and his daughter sandwiched around the story of the woman with the issue of blood. And so we addressed the woman with the issue of blood last week. Um, today, we're going to look at the second half of that story. But what Mark has been laying out for us since he began this book, is really a picture of who Jesus Christ is. His desire is that the reader of the book of Mark would come face to face with Jesus, that you would be able to read this word, and by reading it, that you would come to know who Jesus Christ is. It's the reason that Mark is actually the first gospel. It was the first one written, and it's written very differently than all of the others. It's It's not a very particular account of every single thing that Jesus did and where he went and who he talked to, like you find in the book of Luke. It it doesn't talk much about Jesus' lineage or or family background like the book of Matthew. Mark just dives in and hits all the highlights because he wants you to walk away with a picture of who this God-man is. And in chapter 5 in particular, we're given four stories that display the breadth of power of Jesus Christ. And so we found in the very beginning of the chapter his power over nature that Jesus inherently has within him as God power over everything that is created. That what began in the work of creation in which Jesus Christ was obviously a part, speaking the world into motion, that that very same power resides in him through the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry. And then we looked at his power over the spiritual realm as he cast demons out of the demoniac of Gennesaret. This amazing, amazing story of this man who for years had been troubled by demons living within him. And with simple words, Jesus Christ demonstrates his power over all of them. And last week we began the discussion of this portion of scripture, talking about Jesus' power over sickness. As this woman who had had this issue of blood for 12 years reaches out and just, just in having faith to reach out and touch his garment, she's healed perfectly. And so today we come to this last portion which demonstrates Jesus' power over death. And it's important to remember the context of the book of Mark, which is something we haven't gone back to since we were in chapter one. The book of Mark is really written to remind the readers of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, this was written specifically to Christians in the Roman area. These are people who had been saved out of paganism. They'd been saved out of worldly lifestyles in which they had worshiped the emperor and worshiped other gods. They'd been saved into Christianity, and now they're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing all kinds of mockery and mistreatment. People are losing their jobs, they're losing their homes, they're being ostracized by their families, they're outcasts culturally and societally, and certainly some of them were beginning to wonder, is all of this worth it? Is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ if this is the cost? And furthermore, even if it is worth it, how in the world can we continue on this way? And see, the truth of the matter is that 2,000 years removed from the writing of the book of Mark, we address many of the same sorts of questions. I mean, we still meet in a relatively free and open way. We are very much, though, in a season of cultural uncertainty. And at the very base of everything that's going on culturally, at least a part of it, is that we see around us a world that is striving to establish a humanistic understanding 
of virtue and morality. Striving ultimately to establish religion. Trying to meet the deepest needs of the human soul through means other than what we find in Scripture itself, a world that is neglecting the biblical authority and the Bible's answers to the problems that we face. And so passages like this one remind us where our hope and our confidence lies. And as we look once again today at the final story of Mark chapter 5, we are struck with the intense practicality of Jesus' earthly ministry. We find Jesus uh, meeting and addressing the suffering of one unique family in Galilee. This gives insight into both the nature of Jesus' deity and his humanity. And here in this moment, we see Jesus at the outset of his ministry, still relatively early on, who is on a divine mission to rescue the world. In Mark chapter 4, he spends the entire chapter talking about the kingdom of God that he is ushering in. He's going to set right all that is broken. And yet, in this passage, what you see is that Jesus accomplishes the means of the kingdom one life at a time. He never loses the perspective of what the kingdom is all about. He never neglects the individual but instead meets them where they are. And that's where we pick up in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he, that is Jairus, fell at his feet. So Mark introduces us to this man named Jairus, and he introduces him as a ruler of the synagogue. And just to put a little bit of meat on what that actually means, Jairus is not a Pharisee, he's not one of the ones who's presiding over everything, but he's most likely a deacon within the synagogue. He's one who is responsible for the worship at the local level. But he's a man then of reputation. He's a man of influence. He's somebody that people within the community would have recognized. They would have seen his face and they would have known who he was. He was the kind of man where if you were walking down the street with your children, you might point at him and say, hey, there goes Jairus. Do you recognize him from church? He's the guy who, who leads music on Sunday mornings or Saturday, actually, because they were Jews. But, but um, what you find in this, in this text is, is this man who is so desperately in need that he does something that would have been completely out of, context, out of context for a man at this time. You see him doing two things primarily. First, he comes to Jesus. Now, in and of itself, that's noteworthy. The Pharisees, the ruling class of Judaism, had already begun to plot against Jesus. They had already determined that at best, Jesus Christ was an agitator, and at the very worst, he was a heretic. And so they were plotting by any means possible, first his downfall, trying to trip him up in theological arguments, trying to distract him from his ultimate purpose and his ultimate goal, and finally, plotting his actual death. But despite the criticisms of Jesus that Jairus had no doubt heard, he found himself in such a difficult position that he risked coming to Jesus. Because for a man in his position to come to Jesus would have been scandalous. It was to risk his reputation and what everybody in the community knew about him and of him. It was to gamble with his position in his community. But Jairus had likely been at the synagogue when he'd heard Jesus come in and teach or or hold discussions. He had heard uh, this man, Jesus, speak and undoubtedly had heard of the amazing works that Jesus had accomplished, Jairus recognized in one way or another that there was something different about Jesus. 
but he doesn't just merely come to him. He comes and falls at his feet. I mean, this is not something that any man, let alone a man of influence, would do. Because behavior like this was something that an underling would do. It was something that a servant would do. Men in this culture did not fall unless they were actively in the process of worship. He would have never gotten into this prone position in front of everybody else. But then we find out what ultimately led him to this place of desperation. Look what it says in verse 23. Jairus implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. See, desperation humbles us. And in moments of desperation, we do things and go places and look to things that we otherwise might not look to for hope. Because no matter your station in life, no matter the position of import of your life, there are certain things that come into your life that no amount of power and no amount of influence and no amount of money can fix. And so here's Jairus so desperate and so in need that he's willing to take flack from the socialites and the religious leaders of the day for coming to Jesus because Jairus knew that apart from divine intervention, his little girl was going to die. You can imagine his plight. Children are supposed to outlive their parents. And any parent in the room would certainly understand and agree with that sentiment. That this man in absolute desperation pleads for Jesus to heal his little girl. And look at the response from Jesus. It's very quick, verse 24, and he went with him. We don't know what all Jesus' plans were at this point, but here you see the compassion of Jesus Christ. Everyone wanted his attention. Everyone wanted a piece of him. Everyone wanted to see him. Everyone wanted something from him, and yet he cares enough for this man in this particular moment to leave everything else he might have done, to go with this man with whom he had nothing in earthly reason in common, to go with him and to care for him. And now this is where the story really takes a turn. Because if you remember last week, or if you listen to Susan's reading this, morning, or this evening, rather, Jesus is interrupted on his way to Jairus' house. Because as he's moving through this large crowd with people bumping into him all around, crowds so large he can hardly push through them, he's touched by a woman with a discharge of blood, and he stops to interact with her. And for everything that we learned about and talked about last week about Jesus' tenderness and care and compassion and heart for this woman, for all of the compassion that Jairus had already experienced from Jesus in this moment, imagine what Jairus must have been thinking. I mean, he might have been looking at this woman saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry for this woman's condition. I'm really sorry that she's had this going on for 12 years, but my daughter is at the point of death. And yes, this woman's, this woman's situation is horrible, but, but if we don't act now, my daughter's going to die. And so you can imagine Jairus standing there with his arms crossed, tapping his shoulder, trying to speed the process along, giving Jesus looks out of the corner of his eye like, we need to go, we've got other things to do. He's too polite to interrupt, but he's perhaps thinking all of those things. And no one would blame him 
if he'd had that reaction. But as Jesus delays first healing this woman and ultimately assuring her of the peace that she now had, not only with her fellow man, but with God as well, we see that the story changes. See, as Jesus delays to talk to this woman, we see a truth emerge. That God's grace in responding to our requests almost never accommodates our timetable. In other words, Jesus is not simply saying that his love for us will carry us through the waiting, but in fact he's saying that when he delays and when he waits, it's because he loves us. And so often we presume we know what we need. And so we go in good faith and in good will before God and we pour out our hearts and we pour out our requests and we ask for things and we ask for intervention because we are presuming certainly this is what God would want. Certainly God values the very same things that I value. And it's true that perhaps God's values and yours do align, but perhaps the timing is intended to be different. So I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this and I couldn't find one, so here's my best attempt at it. A few years ago, we were, we were um, up in the Wisconsin Dells with my son. I think we only had Leo at the time, and he was probably two years old thereabouts. And so we'd gone up there with some friends. We'd found a cabin that we were going to stay in, and then we were going to go to a water park while we were there. And I remember as we were going through the water park, we come in through the main entrance, and the very first thing that you, that you see in the water park is the Lazy River. You know what that is? It's the real little thin uh, stream of water that goes through, and you can sit in a floater, and you can just kind of lazily make your way around the whole property. And I remember Leo's eyes lighting up when he saw it because he wanted to get in that water. And I remember telling him, no, no, wait, there's, there's more. There's more I want you to see. I have something else for you. You're really going to like it. And he just couldn't get past the fact because now we're walking alongside the lazy river and he sees other people lazily floating past him and he wants to jump in and he wants to be in the middle of all this. But then we finally get into the main room where there's all of these big water attractions and there's fountains and there's streams and, uh, and, and there's the wave pool and all of these things that are just blowing his young mind And had he gotten what he wanted in that very first moment, certainly he would have been satisfied. But there was something so much greater that he didn't even know about. See, God may not do the things that you want him to do in the way that you want him to do it, in the time that you would prefer him to do it, but the timing of God's will is always for your benefit. I'm very fond of a saying from Tim Keller who once said, God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Now you have to think about that a little bit and some of you, I see you kind of cranking your heads, but God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he, knew, he knows. In other words, there are things that God has for your life because he knows you intimately and he knows what you need and he has the end goal in mind. He knows where he's leading you and he knows what's going to happen and so there are things that he will give you that you would have asked for if you knew what he knows, but you don't. And so you sit and you hope and you wait. And that's where this man finds himself in this moment. He just stood there waiting for Jesus. And look what happens in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
And with the news of his daughter's death, Jairus' situation had gone from improbable to impossible. His heart sinks. He's overwhelmed by grief and by sorrow. How might you have reacted if it was you? Would you have been angry at this woman for interrupting? Would you have been angry at Jesus for stopping? He didn't even get to be with his daughter in her final moments. How could this, how could this have even happened to Jairus? I mean, after all, he came and he fell on his face before Jesus just as the woman had. He had faith in Jesus Christ just like the woman did. He risked criticism and ostracization just like the woman had. And to be fair, he had asked first. But here this woman stood, healed and at peace, while his daughter was dead. Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Literally translated, if you were to translate that as literally as you could into English, here's what he's saying. Stop fearing, continue believing. He corrects him with one word, stop the feelings. I know what's going through your mind, I know what's going on in your heart, you've gotta, you've gotta stop. And the belief that you had, keep that going. Stop fearing, continue believing. And now right here in this moment, Jairus is faced with a decision. Does he believe that Jesus is just another prophet? Maybe even a miracle worker? Does he believe that he's just a shaman or a healer who has a spark of the divine but still has limitations? Does Jesus just belong in our modern context? Does Jesus just belong in the same category as Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius? Or is Jesus something entirely different? Is he the one whom the winds and the seas obeyed? Is he the one who has power over the spiritual realm? Is he God? And we see Jairus' answer because Jairus went with him. His faith remained in Jesus, though he didn't understand the timing. See, when you're with Jesus, there is always hope. Even when things seem hopeless and helpless, Jesus is not done working. Look what happens in verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. By the way, this is the first time you see Jesus interacting with the inner circle, those, those three disciples. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. So Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John. He heads to Jairus' house, and as he arrives on the scene, it's pandemonium. Now, to understand what's happening contextually here, the house is filled with mourners. And this isn't just family in the way that we would think about it. In this day and age, especially if you were a person of means, you hired people professionally who came in to mourn. 
Now that sounds odd and strange to us as we, as we think about it, but actually the reasoning behind it made some sort of sense. See, families wanted to be able to weep and to moan and to wail and to let out all the emotions of their grief and their sorrow without being self-conscious. They didn't want to have to worry about other people hearing them cry or, or other people hearing them shout out. And so what they would do is they would hire professional mourners to come into their home to make such a ruckus and such a noise that the family members couldn't be heard crying. So Jesus walks into all of this chaos and he says, why are you weeping? This girl is just asleep. And look at verse 40. This is a strange reaction. And they laughed at him. Their mourning, their weeping stops momentarily. They laughed at him. Perhaps derisively, perhaps mocking him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So everybody there hears Jesus say that and their response is to laugh at him and seemingly they had every reason in the world to mock. They knew very well that this girl was not sleeping. For whatever lack of medical expertise they had, they could recognize the signs of life and this girl had none of them. The color had gone from her skin. She had stopped breathing. Her heart had stopped beating. She was dead. But Jesus, in using this term, isn't suggesting that she was just tired and needed a nap. The word sleep, as it's translated here, is the same word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the death of a Christian. In fact, it's used exclusively to describe the death of Christians. It's never used to describe those who don't know Christ. But in all of the other occasions, in 1 Thessalonians and in Colossians, where this language is used, it references those who know Jesus Christ and have died. And in using this word, here is ultimately what Jesus is indicating. He is communicating that for the Christian, death is not the final word. So Jesus sends everyone away. He enters this room with, her, with the parents and with Peter and James and John. Now look at what happens. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha cum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Jesus walks in the room. He takes the hand of this little dead girl. And he says, Talitha cum. It's an Aramaic phrase, and it's really a term of fatherly endearment. You can read that in the English translation in front of you, but the most interesting thing that I came across this week was one translator who said, if you were trying to translate this in the vernacular of the day, it would be like Jesus coming to this girl and saying, little lamb, wake up. There's a sweetness and a tenderness about what Jesus says. I mean, this was the sort of phrase that this little girl had heard countless times in her young life. When her father came in to greet her, when her mother came in the room to tell her to get ready for school. And as Jesus speaks these simple words, death is undone. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. This girl wasn't just brought back to life with all of the same maladies and illnesses that she had previously had. The last time this father had seen her, she was laying in her bed close to death, sick with all the signs of someone who's just about to pass. But immediately, at the very simple and profound and fatherly words of Jesus Christ, she stands up and begins walking around the room fully, wholly restored. She was instantly made whole. See, this was Jesus making good on his instruction to Jairus. Stop fearing. Continue believing. And it's also Jesus giving an illustration of the words that he had claimed in John eleven twenty five when he said, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. See, Jairus had placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and in doing so, he placed his daughter's fate into the hands of the one who had first breathed life into Adam and Eve. He placed her fate in the hands of the one who had spoken the world into motion. And everything that happens in these few simple verses is a foreshadowing of the kingdom that Jesus had come to bring, a kingdom in which death has died, in which sickness is eradicated, in which sorrow is replaced with rejoicing, and in which tears are wiped away. See, when Jesus comes in contact with death, he overrules it. Verse 43, and he strictly charged them that no one should know and told them to give her something to eat. And much like we've seen Jesus do before, first in healing the lepers and in various other times, he had told this family, you you can't go telling everybody what just happened. And as we think about why in the world would Jesus do that, I mean, why wouldn't he take the opportunity with all of those doubters around, with all of the people who laughed at him when he said that they were sleeping, with all of these people that could have potentially come to know him, why in the world did he say, don't tell anybody about this? Well, it wasn't time for the whole world to hear of his exploits. It wasn't time for the messianic mission of Jesus to be made known. He had more work to do. Now the question we have to ask then is this. What do we take away from this? You'll remember last week that when the woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus, she was healed immediately. What she had hoped for and expected would happen was done. Everything happened exactly in the matter and fashion that she'd expected. But Jairus experiences something totally different. And in Jairus' approach, we see a model for how we are to approach Jesus. First, we ought to approach him humbly. And Jairus walks up to Jesus, and the first thing he does is fall to his face in recognition of who Jesus was. Do we realize when we talk to Christ, when we approach him, when we have conversations with him, yes, he is a friend that's closer than a brother. Yes, yes, we can speak freely to him and openly to him without fancy words. But do we realize as well that we're speaking to God? Do we realize when we bring our request before God 
that this very same God who did all of these things is the one who's hearing our prayers? Do we come to him without pretense of heart, without presuming that we're owed something, and instead entrusting ourselves to his goodness? Second, we should come confidently. I mean, Jairus approaches Jesus risking criticism and ostracization, knowing that Jesus Christ was the only one who could help him. And Christ invites us to come to him with our needs, to come boldly before the throne room of grace. Third, and this is the hard one, we should come expectantly. And when I say expectantly, don't don't hear me wrong. It's not a presumption that what you ask for is inherently the same thing that what you that, that is what you will get. But we come expectantly that the God of the universe delights in hearing our requests. That he is a loving father who loves hearing his children's cries and responding to them. Do we come expectantly knowing that he has both the power and the compassion to listen and to act? And fourth, we should come submissively. I mean, Jairus' intention was that his daughter would be healed before she died, but Jesus wasn't going to grant that particular request. He did it in a way that Jairus didn't expect and certainly in a way that Jairus would not have asked for. But what Jairus learned through all of, all of this is that he could trust Jesus' compassion even when Jesus did not answer the way he thought he should answer. But imagine then what this must have done for Jairus' faith. Imagine how this must have transformed his family. Imagine how, much, how, how this must have altered their mindsets and their approach. Imagine what this did for Peter and James and John who had witnessed all of these things. And through all of that, God was glorified. See, in and through this, Jairus not only found joy in the restoration of his daughter, he found acceptance in the sight of God. Now, why why do I say that? What does acceptance in the sight of God for Jairus have to do with the healing of his daughter? Well, here's why I say that. It's interesting to note that when Jesus approaches Jairus' daughter, he takes her hand. I mean, that's a very fatherly thing to do, isn't it? And there's a sweetness about that. There's something really unexpected. Even with what we know of Jesus Christ, there's something unexpected about the fact that he reaches out and takes her hand. I mean, everyone in this room can remember a time in your life where you were scared and where you reached out and grabbed the hand of a parent or a grandparent or a loved one or a friend. And in that embrace, you found some level of security and reassurance. And when Jesus reached out and grabbed this dead girl's hand, it was the second time in this text that Jesus came in contact with someone who was ceremonially unclean. These were people who were not to be touched. If you were an observant Jew, you did not touch dead things or dead people. You did not touch someone, specifically someone who had an issue with blood. And yet in this text, twice Jesus does this. Now why is that? 
It's because when Jesus, when Jesus comes in contact with someone, he makes clean whatever he touches. I mean, there may be someone in this room who's thinking, man, I love all of this. This is all well and good. I love the faith that you people have, and I love how you're talking about Jesus, and I wish I could believe like you, and I wish I could have faith like you have, but you don't, you don't know what I've done, and you don't know my background, and how in the world could God love me if he knows where I've been? Well, the evidence of Jesus Christ's love for you was the extent to which he was willing to go on your behalf. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says it this way. It says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what what does all of that mean? Here's what it means. It means that Jesus viewed the shame of the cross, the shame of his own death, the shame of the nakedness that he had in front of other people, the shame of the fact that the most horrific death for an observant Jew was to die on a cross, to die on a tree. He observed all of that shame, and we're told that he despised it. It means that he viewed all of that shame in light of the eternal joy and glory that awaited him. That in the moment when death and Satan thought they had won, thought they had made a fool of the Son of God, thought that they had won the victory, Jesus despised it. It's as if Jesus looks at death and looks at shame and says, compared to the joy that's before me, the salvation of my people, the glorification at the right hand of the Father, compared to the power of what I'm accomplishing, you are nothing. In fact, the very death that Satan intended to crush Jesus was used by Jesus to accomplish his own means. And finally, it says, he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was Jesus' joy on the cross? What was it in the hardest moments of his suffering where he's hung naked on a cross with nails in his hands and in his feet, a crown of thorns dug into his skull, bleeding and struggling to breathe? What in the world was it that could have possibly been Jesus' joy in that moment? Was it merely the fact that he was bringing glory to God? Well, remember, remember where he came from. He already had glory as God. Was it just to accomplish holiness? Well, no, he was already perfectly holy. So why in the world did Jesus even need to come to earth? I think we find the answer in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, which says this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus Christ, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So what are the results of all of Jesus' suffering, of everything that he endured, that he made us righteous? What was the only thing that in heaven 
with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all together, what was the only thing they did not have? Us. Do you realize that when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, the joy, at least a part of the joy that carried him forward was thinking about you? That in Jesus' suffering, he was seeking us. And when he rose from the dead three days later, he put an exclamation point on the sentence that begins in this story. That what he had done for this one little girl was going to be accomplished perfectly for his people. See, the truth of the story is this girl eventually died again. Now, she grew older and she had a life and she did all of the things that people do, but eventually she died again. But when Jesus Christ went to the cross on your behalf, when he experienced the brutality of all of that, when he experienced the abandonment of the Father so that through his own resurrection he could take your hand and say, little one, wake up. In his death and his resurrection, he secured once and for all the eternal life that he now offers to those who know him. So for those who don't know him, for whom all of this sounds great and yet so far away, the invitation of this passage is after seeing Jesus in his full power and compassion, are you like Jairus, willing to take your place of faith in him? Are you willing to place all of your hope in the work that only he could accomplish? And for those of you who already know him, have you grown bored with the story? So familiar that we've moved past the majesty and the horror and the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus accomplished for you and for me. We'd love the opportunity to help you think through those questions and answer those questions to the best of our ability. We'd love the opportunity to sit with you and talk more about who this Jesus is, about why we believe in him, about why we gather on a beautiful Sunday evening to sit together and sing to him and talk about him and read about him. Would you consider who this Jesus is to you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that this passage challenges our assumptions about who you are, for the ways that it reveals your nature and your character, for the ways that it breaks down our presumptions about how you can or ought to do things on our behalf. God, would you help us in everything that we do to seek you? Would we be faithful to approach you with humility and with confidence and with expectancy and with submission? Would we trust in your goodness? But God, in all of that, would we realize that the starting place for us is that we were, we were sinners 
at war against you. And that while we were still warring against you in our souls, you came and died for us. That you rescued us from ourselves and that you rescued us from death and hell and the grave. So God, help us to remember and to look forward to a day of reunification with the saints who've gone before us, with brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and grandparents who passed. Help us to remember and recall that they are merely asleep. That to close our, our eyes for the Christian, to close our eyes in this life is to open them once again in your glory. God, we thank you for who you are. And we trust you with these things. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.